Allison, I've been thinking a lot about our show and, you know, we're reaching like all new kinds of listeners every week and it's just not enough for me. Like I really want us to get more listeners. So I've been, you know, sitting with myself, you know, reading my self-help materials, read Josefina, and it actually inspired me with a business idea to help us get more listeners. Oh, I can't wait to hear it. As you know, there is a goat prominently in this book. And the minute I read this goat, and it's, you know, it's what I'll call spirit, generously. And, you know, I connected this with some Us Weeklies I've read in the past. And I feel as though we could have a, a real business in goat yoga. Yes, I think we would have to call it like be the goat or be your best goat or go on goat to be evocative of greatest of all time. That's correct. And instead of people coming and thinking that we're going to play Anya in the background or something that's meant to be soothing, we will only be streaming past episodes of this show. I like that, but I think we can also splice in some selections from the Selena film starring Jennifer Lopez. I, If I start thinking about that movie right now, I will weep. And if I start thinking about actual Selena, I will lose control. I know. So I oh! have... What? <laughs> is, is she says, like, I'll lose control tonight. No? Because <gasps> the way I feel I lose control and let you stay. Yeah. Oh my god. Welcome everyone. Welcome to the next chapter in American Girls, the show where we're reliving American Girl book by book. On this episode, we're meeting a whole brand new, new to me, American Girl, Josefina. I'm Allison. And I'm Mary. And I just want to say in our opening, you know, moment, Allison did surprise me with a Selena reference. And I did not, I couldn't handle it, basically. And I just need to take a moment at the beginning of this show. And just like moment of silence for Selena, like my Tejano queen, I am, I will never get over your tragic passing. And I know that Josefina is not Tejano. But I just, I'm thinking about you. That's it. Allison, thoughts? Well, I, I think the Selena connection comes primarily from the fact that, I don't know, did she inspire the creation of this doll? I can't say. I would venture to guess that's true. And I can't help but think about a very, to me, foundational moment in the J-Lo depiction of Selena's life where there's a scene where Selena is about to cross over and then she's doing this um, press release and they're like how is she going to handle this and like is she going to speak English and then she realizes that her Spanish is like not great because she was actually raised primarily speaking English I think that's true but anyway she says they say how do you feel about this change I think she's asked the question in Spanish and she answers in English I'm so excited. Excited. (laughs) Paging Jesse Spano. And to me, that kind of speaks to what we're tripping into here, which is a world where national identities are not concrete. They're very fluid, not unlike Selena. Josefina, I have no idea what's happening. And I came, as I said last week, I was not going to read anything about this character, this series, anything about it. Came to this completely fresh today. So we were both sort of having this moment just a few pages in where we realized that 
when they talk about American Girl in the context of this title, they're referring to American in terms of the North American continent because Josefina lives in Santa Fe in what will become the state of New Mexico much later. Like, literally, statehood is not conferred until 1912. What? So this is almost a century prior to statehood being formalized. So they mean American in the broad sense of the continent. But she and Felicity both have in common that they are colonial girls more than United States girls. That's true. Which is kind of a mind trip when you think about it. You know, I came to this book and I was feeling my own limitations because, you know, look, I have a PhD in American history the history I read in grad school was tragically not enough about New Spain or Mexico. And, you know, I will own that limitation right from the jump. And we will get into that. But before we do, Allison, you know, how's your week been going? What have you been up to? You went to a place that is kind of a shrine to a different American girl this week. Whew. Yeah. And much like many of these American girls, a person who had just as little interest in domestic duties. So I went to the home of Eleanor Roosevelt, who's kind of like a queen if it wasn't so undemocratic. She is a queen. queen. So I would, again, we would call it a shrine. So I went to Valkill in, I think people from New York would not call it upstate New York, but up is relative in the Hyde Park area. And I saw FDR's house, but really you're there for Eleanor or you shouldn't be there at all. Correct. What were your thoughts, feelings? I went there last summer and I will like throw some of mine in after, but what, what did, you know, did you catch Eleanor's spirit in the place? You know, what kind of vibe did you have? Did you ask probing questions about Eleanor's private life? So I turned to my my good friend who was touring around with me while we were in the FDR property. And if you've never been there, um, she put it absolutely perfectly. She said, this is his mom's estate and it's her fridge and shrine to her son. Like when FDR was young, he was really into stuffing birds on the one hand and political cartoons from the War of 1812. Like we all have a thing. The entire first floor of the house is that stuff on display in like cheap frames. Yeah. Like he's a grown man. He's the president. She was like, no, no, no. That stays. You go to Eleanor's house. I've purchased better frames from Kmart than what she had on the walls. That place is a shock. Like when you think in your mind, okay, I'm going to a home lived in by one of the most well-known first ladies in our nation's history. You paint a picture in your head of what you're going to walk into. Like, my grandma could have lived in this house. And actually, my grandmother, who was not rich by any means, would have been like, I'm embarrassed. (laughs) There are scenes in Eleanor Roosevelt biographies where famously people always note of her that she could not cook and did not care to cook as a thing. Yeah, queen. And even in the White House, she would have people up for supper and basically put a hot plate on the table with a frying pan and was like, well, I'm going to make you guys scrambled eggs and that's all you're going to get and you're going to enjoy it and that's it. But Valkyl is weird because it was a factory that she then decided to live in. So it was like, and this was before Brooklyn hipster types were like, oh, I'm going to turn this like bow tie factory into my, you know, family homestead or whatever. But like, it's a weird, like she... It jumps off that she was not someone for whom creature comforts mattered or like aesthetics were particularly important. Or for her guests. 
Uh, no. You saw something that I was dying to see that I was deprived of when I was there. You were allowed to go upstairs. And I won't speak of why or the exact context, but I did get to see the upstairs. I got to go into the sleeping porch. It was very hard not to touch anything. Like it was very hard not to lay down and take a nap. It was like one of the most important minds of the 1930s and 1940s, like took little napsies out here. That's just a nice thought. I'm so jealous. Oh, my God. Honestly, you should be like it was great. I went there last summer. It's a beautiful as much as I'm saying the house is like not what I expected. The situation of the house, like the the land where the house is sitting, which is just next to Hyde Park, but feels like a world away, which was probably the point. Um, it's so beautiful. And there's a bench in the front of Hyde Park in front of like this kind of pond or stream that leads into a pond. And it's so beautiful. I just remember sitting there and thinking like, yeah, she had it right. If this is what she wanted to get away from FDR's mom, mother-in-law from hell. Um <laughs> I'll I say this too. Like a lot is made of her not cooking, right? But there's this kind of other related story, which is that she was very, very interested in home economics as a discipline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my past life, I was researching that for a long time. And she was heavily involved with the cultivation and growth of the College of Home Economics at Cornell University. And during the Depression, It wasn't so much that she wasn't into cooking. She was absolutely obsessed with making sure that anything she was attached to ran as efficiently and scientifically as possible, which is not always the best food. So even when food was being put on the table inspired by EZE, people were like, we shouldn't have to eat that. Like, this is still the White House. Like, she chose the most ergonomic, most, like, calorie heavy but not necessarily tasty most nutritious recipes and that's what people ate even if it was just like bean heavy and she was the first lady that's kind of wild you know what i mean it's like but she doesn't she doesn't conceptualize a splurge the way we might like i don't think she would go to our goat yoga I don't think she would go to our goat yoga. And in the midst of since recording, starting recording this, we have both obtained baked goods, which we will be consuming throughout this recording. I all I don't want to say she would disapprove. I don't think she would understand our need for it. I don't think she would understand a lot of things about our lives. Let me segue to this. So when I was there, a straight man on my tour... This is fascinating to me. The end of the tour, we had this tour guide who was very well-intentioned. But you know when you go on a house tour and the person takes on, sort of becomes like the personal defense attorney of the person whose home they're giving a tour of, which is an instinct I totally understand. But everything you say about them, they're like, nope, didn't happen. Like anything that would personally be a, like, be a flaw now, even if it wasn't in their own time, they're like, nope, that never happened. That never took place. They were never there. They're innocent. Like moving on. That's the vibe this lady had about Eleanor, which I did respect. But at the end of the tour, (laughs) this very straight, like, well-intentioned man there with his wife was like, hey, um, it was right when that Eleanor and Hick book came out. And he was like, hey, um, first question, is it true that Eleanor had an affair with her, like, bodyguard or, like, FDR's bodyguard when he was governor? This guy, I think his name was, like, Frank. Mm. I'll have to look that up. Um, And he's like, follow-up question, did she have a relationship with... Hick. I just read Eleanor and Hick. Your thoughts. And the woman basically turned into like Johnny Cochran and was like, no, how dare you? Like she loved FDR. They had a very beautiful marriage. 
she did build a house next door to his mansion because she didn't want to live under his roof anymore. But that all aside, like, that never took place. Like, it was a wild defense. I'll say this. We both read White Houses by Amy Bloom. And that imagines a very vivid, a very intense romantic relationship between Eleanor and Hick. And I don't buy that telling. Like, it is admittedly fiction, but that is not what I buy. Why not? I, so in the telling of that book, there's this piece of Eleanor that values a close romantic relationship above everything, potentially her own reputation. I don't think a woman who stays married to a man for decades that she can't stand is then so sort of risky in this other part of her life. Because that would have been the end of her political career in that context, I think, to her. I think there were women in her life like Polly Murray who did live as what we would think of as queer, who did live beyond the typical boundaries of their time. I don't see that with her. Like the way that Amy Bloom represents her as sort of this like lovesick girl behind the scenes with Hick. I don't get that from her. Hmm. I think that book really reads as fanfic. Like, you know, in light of our fanfic episode, I think... You know, it's kind of like, and like we talked about fanfic on that episode, particularly, I think it has a power for queer folks and queer readers to kind of see themselves in history, see themselves in even our world today. I think it's a situation where we've talked a lot about how LGBTQ plus history is interpreted at historic sites. And, you know, it's hard to say like what best practices are, but I think to kind of present evidence of her communication with Hick and to look at the letters they sent one another. I mean, that's kind of really all we have. And then from that, you can kind of extrapolate. I think we'll never probably know any of the internal life of Eleanor Roosevelt because she was so guarded and closed off from, you know, events in her childhood and her adulthood. I wouldn't rule out that she was with Hick. I just think we'll never know. Like, we'll never know. And if it's important for certain people to be able to tell that story, then I respect that. But I also have no skin in the game of being like, nope, she was straight. Like, No. I both agree that she probably did have a relationship that can be thought of as romantic with Hick. And when I was reading that novel, it rang really false. Like picturing Mm -hmm. Eleanor as like running away to be like giggly with this woman. I, I don't see that. I think she I think it was real. I think they did have a romantic relationship, but I can see that she was probably like, look, I don't have time for this right now. Like if someone wrote her a really like head over heels, like crazy in love letter, I think she would be like, you know, mama's trying to draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights right now. Like, I don't have time for this. You know, call me next week. I don't I'm not here for that right now. I think it's kind of like the first time that you have a crush on someone or you're in a relationship with someone like you're so head over heels. That's kind of how that book makes Eleanor seem. Yeah. And I don't buy that piece, but I do think, you know, whatever they had going on was not purely platonic. Oh, I I agree with that. I agree with that. But what disappoints me about Valkyl is they could have real conversations about queer relationships in that time, in that place, and they don't really want to do it because, of course, her friends with whom she lived at Valkyl initially when it was a factory of like early American reproduction furniture to revitalize that local economy, they were very open about being in a relationship with each other. So even just to tell the history of those women and use the site for that, they do talk about them. They acknowledge they were in a relationship, but they don't really like 
go above and beyond as a national park site to like go there. I will say someone released a photo this week in anticipation of Pride Month and it was a shot of Eleanor from Valkyll and it had rainbows coming out of it. And it was like, you decide. So (laughs) stay tuned and be sure to listen all the way to the end because we have a question that we would love you all to answer by calling into our hotline. So don't let this thread go away. Please call our hotline. Anyway, speaking of not calling a hotline, but calling 911, which is what I (laughs) wanted to do on myself a couple of nights ago when we were together and we were watching Bachelorette. Yes. These men, Allison, I'm, I'm in a state over this. Like, I can't believe... If people are not watching this, please jump on this bandwagon right now. You really don't have to have seen anything so far. This like we don't know anyone's name. We haven't committed anyone's name to memory. I know nothing about Hannah. We know three names. I know and John Paul all- Jones. John Paul Jones and then Cam because he goes by ABC, always be Cam. And we know Luke P because I don't want to say anything about one of these people as a real person. The persona that is being shown on television of Luke P is a person who is dangerously unhinged. He is he is very like speaking of the time that we're going to be speaking about, we had a very beloved college professor who has since passed away and he taught early American history and whenever he would talk about Andrew Jackson, he would always refer to him as being quote unhinged. And I had not myself heard many people use that word in common use as much as he did. And it just worked its way into my vocab. And now every time I use it, I think about him, which is kind of a nice tribute, even though it's not a positive association. It's not about him. It's just to use that word. Luke P is straight up unhinged, 24-7, ready to go. So Luke P, some of you may or may not know, went from like absolutely falling in love with Hannah on episode two to being somewhat rebuffed in episode three and deciding he barely likes her anyway, question mark. He's like, look, I might just go home. Like, I don't. His trajectory was like, Jesus told me in the shower I should be here. Then like the moment I saw you, I knew you were meant to be my wife. And then she's like, look, I kind of need you to take a beat and let me call the shots because you keep interrupting me with these other guys. Like there's always men on. There's a moment on every season when the when the contestants realize what the the structure of the show is, which is that <laughs> multiple people are vying for this one person and they're just one person vying for this person. So he was like, I don't really like that there's all these other dudes here. And it's like, um, sir, have you not seen this program before? Like, this is kind of how it works. To be fair, I think he had one of the few sane reactions to what was essentially a modern day Milgram experiment disguised as a date. Okay, this is the thing that sent me over the edge. So they have group dates and there are frequently group dates where they introduce like what I would call B-grade celebrities who they want you to care about, who are promoting some kind of project and we learned from reading the book that we promoted last week that you have to like the dates have to be free basically for the show or they won't do it so we get um jason biggs jason biggs i've never seen american pie so i'm just gonna say that i don't i don't know the thing that made him famous and his wife jenny is that his wife yeah that's his wife oh okay i believe they have children in real life i know he has children that's correct. And um, they basically were like, okay, you're all going to go through, you know, different exercises to prove that you would be a good co-parent with Hannah. 
including they all put electrodes on to simulate what childbirth would feel like. And Hannah had to like hold their hand one by one. And they filmed them in like middle close up reacting to turning the electrodes on. And the doctor was kind of playing games with like more. She was okay. (laughs) She was a little bit too into it. Where she was like, ooh. And I was like, ma'am, are you, where did, what are your credentials? Like, if I was any of them, I would go up to her and just say, like, so your specialty is again, what? Like, psychiatry? Um, do you have no practice insurance? Like, can I call somebody? I think what, what's so interesting about the series, where it is now, because people will say, you watch that show, but you're smart. And it's like, everyone who watches it is smart because the show is basically winking at you half the time. Like the show knows that the center cannot hold. And like that center has fallen out many years ago. And now it's just like a swirling vortex of nightmare. It's so dark and terrible, but beautiful at the same time. It always makes me laugh. There's always a person who out of nowhere is like, but I think this is where I find my wife. And it's like, do you? I what? Don't. And they're like, just if these other men would get out of the way. Yeah, it's it's not great. It's it's really it's really not great. There's also this kind of enduring trope. So, you know, how you learn that you're staying another week, like the symbol is the rose. And in this book, we learn that Felicity thinks the key to keeping family members around is presenting them with flowers. Josefina, I mean, Josefina, oh my gosh. Oh my, oh my gosh. God. How dare you erase I apologize. of color and replace her with a white girl, Allison? I would never. No, I that was a total error. I'm still very much in Felicity on our social media, so <laughs> I, I made a mistake. True. I still miss Nan. I'm just going to say that. It's probably going to be five years from now, and I'll be like, and where is Nan today? I think there are equally troublesome sisters that can play that role for you from Josefina's life. I, like the Bachelor contestants, cannot commit all of their names to memory as of yet, but I am working on it. So do you want to start, do you want to move to the book? This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. Let's give people just some basics. So I hadn't noticed this previously, but all of the characters, the year that they're located in in the first book ends in a four. So we have now moved to 1824. And we learn from the publisher that Josefina Montoya is growing up on a rancho near Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1824. Ever since Mama died a year before, Josefina and her three sisters have been struggling to carry on without her. 
One bright fall day, happy news arrives. Their beloved grandfather is returning home after a long trading trip. Josefina knows that he will bring exciting stories and wonderful treasures from his journey. But this time, he brings something more. A great surprise that Josefina and her sisters never even dreamed of. I I don't know where to begin with this book, but I will just say that when I finished the last page of this book, I set it down and said out loud, I was home alone, said out loud, Valerie Tripp, you've done it again. I was so engrossed in this book. As you know, one of our shared separate pleasures is going out and reading by ourselves in diners or coffee shops. Correct. And because I was in New York State, I had to read this in a diner. So I ordered myself a Belgian waffle. I got myself a coffee and I read this book. Like, I don't think I breathed except to inhale my waffle. You know, every no one no one would judge you for that. Belgian waffles are one of the greatest treasures on earth. That is not a joke. I mean I like Josefina. I think she's gonna be a great character for us yes. to tag along with. And I did read this book as a child. Okay, I've never read this book before in my life. Just met Josefina today. I reached across time with the help of Valerie Tripp and I made what I hope is a new friend. I genuinely will say she is extremely likable. Yes. There is nothing about her that when I read Me Felicity I, again, many years after the first reading, I was like, Are, is this a joke? I was like, remember when I wanted to be this person? Like, have I changed? Has Felicity not changed? What's happening? Really set me off on an existential crisis. With Josefina, she's extremely sweet and extremely likable and extremely like open, um, earnest, curious, um, and grateful and, and so much gratitude running through this book. Also so much grief. This book is so, as an opening book, this book is really sad. And, and we kind of talked a little bit off air, of course, like, because we are who we are, we had like a 40 minute phone call before we even got into this. There is no central plot in this book that, that we can tell. Like there's no central event either in the foreground or historical event in the background that we're dealing with. And to me, like as I'm sitting and reflecting on that, I think it's actually kind of haunting that the major event in this family's life has happened just before or a year before that we meet them. So that Josefina's mother has passed away. There's a lot of death in this book that happens off, you know, off stage. And it's like, one, we don't know, right, what the cause of death, right? No. And someone did reach out to me with a wildly speculative theory about Tia Dolores, who who is the surprise. We should be clear that the surprise that the grandfather brings is Aunt Dolores or Tia Dolores. And she comes and kind of celebrates with the family and it's her first time really connecting with her nieces and her brother-in-law and someone threw out a wild theory that she was responsible for the mom's death but i don't think that's grounded in anything okay i actually have a different so let me say a couple theories i have going on right now one tia dolores is not responsible for her sister's death however her hands are not clean. I have real questions. Allison's losing it. Allison, please take this seriously. I have real questions about the cause of death of one Tia Dolores's aunt for whom she was caring for a decade in Mexico City. Allison? I barely caught that. Oh, are you kidding? I was taking notes. I was like, "Uh uh-huh. Got it. 
I took that down. I was like, okay, here we go. Here's what we need to, for people who are not reading this book. When we meet, when we first hear about Tia Dolores, let me back up. Josefina lives in, what is this town? She's, she's south of Santa Fe. She's south of Santa Fe. Okay. Tia Dolores lives in Mexico City. Correct. Abuelo runs a caravan. We will get to that. That's another whole thing. Between Santa Fe and Mexico City. And Tia Dolores has been living in Mexico City, taking care of her aunt for a decade, at least. Actually, no, for a decade. And we know that because when she returns as a surprise, she says to Josefina, who is not yet 10, when I left, you were not yet born. And now here you are and you're beautiful. Backing up for a second, when she comes back with Abuelo and stops at their... um, rancho she says yeah you know there's really no reason for me to stay in mexico city anymore i mean my aunt's dead was there caring for her wow is this not this leads into my second theory are you open to book one of meet josefina actually being a mexican rewrite of the piano okay i okay so (laughs) yes yes i i love i love that film i love it love it love now it Now look no one's lost a finger no not yet so part of what's important and i felt like it was a deeply moving scene actually so when dolores decides that she's going to travel with the grandfather north and visit the family and then go to santa fe she insists on bringing the piano they get robbed Dolores probably staged it, if we're being honest. Dolores has a lot to answer for for that I feel as though few readers have really clocked. I'm going to put that out there. If I'm wrong, I apologize. If someone's already on this, like, Dolores as piano beat, reach out to me. I'm open to it. I'm here. But, you know, we're here. We want to hear from you. Can we just say, is Anna Paquin living the life you want for her? No. I don't that's think really, so. That's all I had. She's the star of that film, but that's just not Holly important. Hunter. Are you kidding? I get. I think it's a. I think it's a twofer. Okay, I accept that. But in the way like, that. Okay, but all I have to say is, if there is a woman in the past in a historic film um, book, as this may be, who basically is like my life for a piano. That's my true. alarms are off are going off like what's happening with you you know what i'm saying like what's happening with the piano what does it mean to you it's a lot basically she was like dad i will never leave like did i just kill your sister maybe i just i just want to give you a bit of chronology so the piano came out in 1993 and it's about 1850s new zealand which is like basically the same as this this all tracks to me it's correct I Word. think Valerie, like she finished the other early series and she was like counting her Pleasant Company dollars. Yep. She sees the piano a few years later. Pleasant is like, knock on the door. Uh-huh. You're going to the Southwest. So we'll talk about this more in greater detail. Valerie Tripp actually did relocate for a period of time to try to get this right. Are you kidding? No, I'm very serious. So... Like, you know that she saw the piano and she was like, what can be the basis of Dolores's personality? And then she was like, got it. Ding dong. She's on the (laughs) plane and they screen the piano on the plane. And she's like, what the hell am I going to do? I don't have any plot points. You know, I've like I've read a George O'Keefe bio. I'm realizing now that might not be helpful, but she's like Felicity, guitar, Molly, ukulele, 
The rest, I don't remember. This girl, piano. And I also have like yet another piano related thing while we're on the piano. I also think that she was listening to, this was 1997, we should say, when this came out initially. I think she was also listening to the music. So she's on the plane to New Mexico. She's watching the piano. The plot's starting to come together in her head. Not only is the piano important to Tia Doris's, you know, cover up of a crime, we'll say, but it's also important to her characterization of Josefina as someone for whom music is not just, you know, a thing that brings comfort or pleasure. I'm trying to find this page. Okay, she's listening to Tia Doris do like a quick demo of the piano. And initially they were like, will you please play for us? And grandpa's like, "Uh, uh-uh, no. Do you even know like how much drama I had like repackaging that piano after it fell off into a gully? I'm not getting into this. And then the dad's like, actually, none of us have ever heard a piano before. So if you could please just like kind of pull it together, like none of us have ever heard this. Basically, there's a scene where when Tia Dolores basically plays a couple chords, I think, and then kind of an out of tune little song, Josefina kind of goes somewhere else in her head and is like having what I would call like almost a religious experience. It reminds me of things I've read about Tori Amos, who basically is like, when I play piano, I see colors. Like, I don't know how to read music. I basically like see colors in my mind and it's manifest where I and I understand like what notes to play. So when this book came out, I was on the start of more than a 10 year long journey of being very unappreciative of taking piano lessons. I I was afraid to bring that up because I know that you have some, you know, issues with that. Well, I'm I'm framing it very deliberately as like me being unappreciative, not that it was like it it was not that it was a bad thing. It was that like I don't think I truly appreciated what it was. I like I can sit you, down and play. Yes. And I To what end? I mean, you you can play piano very well. I've heard you once like when you were in the next room and somebody asked you to play and I was like, "Wow, it's very good." I, on the other hand, took piano lessons from a lady who rolled up to my home in a station wagon crammed, I'm not kidding, with sheet music. And she would come into my house. And the reason why I picked her was there was no recitals. I didn't want any part of that. And she didn't make you learn music, which, you know, hindsight being 2020 (laughs) would have been a nice thing to know. But she would come into my house and be like, okay, what are you into this week? And I was kind of a total weirdo. So I was like, look. I'm real deep in the mamas and the papas right now. So if you have any sheet music out in the station wagon of like that or the Go-Go's or like, can I have Prince? And at the time I was like 10 and she was like, you may not have Prince. And I would just sort of like, she would write notes in for me. I was like, I can't read this. And she was like, don't worry about it. I'll write the notes in. And then I knew the notes on the piano. So I would just sort of like, it was like cheat sheets type, type stuff. But now like I can't sit down and like read music. That's disappointing. But I don't think that Dolores can either. Wow. Oh my God. Can we get, okay, here we go. This is a different thing I need to talk about with Dolores. I actually think the event that's going on is, so first of all, this is a piano, Mexican piano remake. I've established that. I think we've, we've pretty much charted out how Valerie got there and what's happening with that. Secondly, the subtext of this book is that this is a job interview. This is a woman who has probably murdered her aunt. Allison's losing it. Eat that peppermint patty and just meditate on what I'm saying. Thank you. Thank you. You gave me a thumbs up. I hope that means you agree with me. This is a job interview. Her sister is dead. She's rolling up to basically be like, I can be her 2.0. And we basically her interaction with the girls is very sweet. Like I do think 
it was sincere. You know, she was trying to be a very active listener and be very like consoling to Josefina in a moment when she was disappointed. But I think that she also was trying to like show her mom chops as someone who is not a mom. And some of it fell kind of flat. So like there's this scene, there's a scene with Josefina where, and we'll get into this character of the goat, but the goat eats flowers that her mother planted and that she was going to present as a gift to um, Tia Dolores for playing her piano for them. And ultimately she finds out the goat has eaten the flowers and she's genuinely upset because she thinks that not only has the goat ruined her gift, but also permanently ruined these flowers that her mother planted that were the last vestige of her mother in this space. And actually that was a genuinely sad moment because grief is really haunting this book as much as I'm like making light of this book. There are a lot of sincere moments where Josefina is sitting with her grief and actually reading grief in other family members like, oh, Tia Dolores misses my mom, too. And she tells her about, you know, a childhood spat they had that's reminiscent of when she's her sisters are having. And it's like, wow, this is a young person trying to work out something that I can't even fathom and something that's really, really sad. While that is happening, though, the aunt is trying to fill in as the mom for the role that I think she wants. And some of the stuff she says is like straight up not helpful or like not mom material. So here's like a tough moment from, you know, so here's a moment when Tia Dolores thinks that she's flying high. So Josefina is telling her on page 60, you know, that Clara and Francisca, oh boy, Francisca are, you know, fighting all the time. She doesn't really know what to do. And Tia Dolores says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. And so in that moment, she's kind of like, whoa, I'm flying high here. I'm like quoting the Sermon on the Mount, like the Beatitudes, like it's all happening for me. And, you know, this is a very like Catholic culture, Catholic family, like she's throwing right to the appropriate thing. Next scene on the next page, she decides to give them all personalized gifts. And you're like, wow, she's really working hard here. She gives Francisca a sewing diary in which she has drawn dresses and written in like what kind of fabrics and what kind of directions on how to make them. So Francisca says on page 62, um, Francisca looked doubtful, but I can't read. She said, none of us can. And this is after she's like, I don't really know if I'll be able to follow this. And Tia Dolores is like, the notes and directions will help you. And she's like, um, none of us can read. And Tia, Tia Dolores responds, Oh, well then, just use your good sense. I'm sure if you and your sisters help each other, you will do very well. It's like, well, but if the issue is the directions are written down and you can't read. I guess I'm wondering. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm wondering at what path this family diverged so greatly where Abuelo, you know, was basically saying, I've got to live on the road. I've got to do me. I've got to do these trips back and forth that take half a year once a year. I've got to leave grandma in Santa Fe. I've got to leave my kids, you know, in two different locations, like with Dolores living in Mexico City, his other child's living at a halfway point. Then he has grandchildren who are motherless. And it's like, what happened? This family prompts more questions than it answers because Papa... His sis, much older sister, we're told, and this isn't like a sneak peek of the next book, but I'm lumping it into this one. We're told that she lives in town and she what? lives in a house that has a notoriously bad roof. And he's like, I don't know. It's really raining out there. There might be flooding. Better go check on her. And I'm like, sir, why is she living on her own? 
Well, you can't have Dolores watch her. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's true. But I mean, we could have Josefina watch Dolores. There could be sort of like a neighborhood watch situation happening here. So, I, And who's watching grandma? Like, I'm very worried about her. You're the only one. I'm sure she's being tended to by a goat. Oh, God. Because the goats. Here we go. We were talking off grid before that. The goat is a minimum fifth of this book. Like, she doesn't get a gal pal. She gets a goat. And also, like, just to ask a probing question, I'm just, I would love this to float above, like, all of our Josefina, like, coverage, I guess we'll call it. Yeah. Is the real American girl, looking for the goat's name? Floricita. Floricita. No, but I guess I'm wondering to whom this was relatable. Like, how many children reading this were like, you know what? I get it. Like, I have goat situations in my life. My neighbors growing up actually did have goats. They wore little bells. They were responsible for taking care of the grass of the neighbors nearby. And they ate the poison ivy and all of those things. Like, I never still had a close relationship with goats. Like, I think that's such a small fraction of the population. It 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 is. And it's, you know, we could say the same thing about horses. True. But at least with horses, I think there's a pre-established culture of girl readers and young girls in particular having a fascination with horses for like their symbolic meanings, for their like, you know, for their beauty, whatever. With goats, like I don't really know that there are a ton of people out there who are like, you know, what's beautiful and majestic and I just can't get enough of like literature about it or goats. Please don't write to me if you're one of these people. Like, I am allowing for variations on this trend. But, you know, it's it's kind of like I said to you off air. Valerie Tripp, I think, sat down and was like, you know, when I started this journey around the sun with American Girl, I kind of happened on this beautiful liberating metaphor of, you know, Penny jumping over the fence and liberating herself. This time around, I'm going to really switch things up. So it's not going to be a horse. It's going to be a goat. And the trajectory is we pen the animal up. We don't set it free. I think it's her way of expressing the two different paths of colonization, right? Ooh, because with Penny, we have the trajectory and the movement towards a colony becoming liberated. And here we have a situation where we have Josefina and her family who are settlers, and they are both dispossessing indigenous people and they are themselves going to be colonized within the decades to come like her adulthood is going to be sort of a nightmare with the mexican-american war yeah i mean i think there's this weird moment in the peeking into the past section where it's like when Josefina was a girl she never would have imagined that when she was grown up she'd be an american citizen and it's it was like, like yeah yeah like that part was very strangely worded. And so if you have the book, it's on page 76 and we'll post this map. It is the most um, it's it's doing the most and saying the least. I'll put it this way. So there's a map that has Santa Fe marked San Antonio marked and Mexico City. And what they've done is what is now the bulk of the territorial continental U.S. is shaded in red. And then what would be considered the Southwest from San Francisco down is a tan color. And there is a red line in what is now the the U.S. border with Mexico. And it says, in 1824, the tan area belonged to Mexico. 
the red line shows the U.S. border today. And and that is the extent to which that merits any comment whatsoever. You know, I just felt myself wanting to quote Abraham Lincoln, who, you know, his first, I believe, official um, resolution that he put before the floor when he was a congressman in 1846 was called the spot resolutions where he demanded. I, sorry. I literally would have bet a billion dollars that you would bring this up because it's your favorite thing. Why? You know, Look. It is it's like literally when I saw this, I was like spot resolutions in 10. Like yeah. I just I just know because Listen. you know why? When we prepared to do our oral exams, I was like, Mary, I don't understand the Mexican-American War. And you turned to me and you said two words. Spot resolutions. It's all you need Show to know. me. It's Show all you need me. to know. No, tell your story. It's great. Listen, when Abraham Lincoln, probably my number one 19th century American heartthrob, I mean, it's not all about the physical. I like, I love him. I'm sorry. I know he's a problematic fave. I don't care. His writing is beautiful. Anyway, moving on. Um, When he was a congressman elected in 1846, the first resolution he put before the floor was called the spot resolutions. And this was at a moment when... Um, the American public were sort of people in favor of annexing Mexico, largely for pro-slavery reasons, um, basically falsely claimed that they had been attacked first so that they invaded Mexico really in self-defense, which made as much sense then as it does now. So Abraham Lincoln put a resolution before the floor that was like, you have to show us the spot where we were attacked. Show me on the map where we were attacked that proves this point. Because it was impossible, and he knew that. And basically everyone was like, oh, God, like, nerd alert. Like, we're all doing this. We're all in favor of it. Get in line. Deal with it. And it's a little, like, lesser-known thing that he was involved in, but I think it's very telling. It's very telling about him. I don't need to defend Abraham Lincoln. He made a lot of mistakes. He, you know, I'm not defending his character. I'm just saying on the Mexican-American War. Imagine if... If he had been in the war room when people showed the visuals of what they claimed to be weapons of mass destruction, he would have been like, show me the spot. He would have been like, and show me, please. Show me the spot. I defend, I will defend his decision making and his character in a way that I cannot with JFK, who's my other presidential crush. And there's nothing I can do about that. You know, we just had his birthday. I just want to note that. Oh, that's wonderful. JFK. I, I know that that's your truth. Thank you. I want to talk about something that I found very jarring and I kind of gave it away because I texted you about it. Um, I'm going to talk about the grandfather for a second. Is that okay? Go for it. So we were reading and so there's there's this underlying thing for us that we're going to have to be working out over the next six books, which is, again, what is the central event underlying all of this? Like, what are we building towards? Because I honestly don't remember. But in the scene where they're anticipating his arrival, which, by the way, it basically sounds like for weeks on end, they're just like waiting for it to happen at any time. We get a message um, and they have a sense that they're hearing it come. So Josefina is listening and the thought is, yes, there it was. She could hear the rumble and squeak of wooden wheels that meant only one thing. The caravan was coming. And I guess my question is, what would happen if we sent this to major cable outlets? Like, do you think good? Do you think this could change hearts and minds where it's like, what if this was the caravan primarily Dolores's piano? 
it is kind of hard to read these books and not think about current events. But in a way, it's like, wow, Grandpa was able to move so freely. I mean, yes, he was attacked by thieves and there were other obstacles, but it's hard to not read his character and his trajectory as not being in some way in conversation with very real and extremely tragic things that are happening right now. Like the fact that it's more restrictive now than it was for grandpa who admittedly is like a person of privilege in his own world. It is kind of shocking. So this, this part of the book reminded me really vividly of shadows at dawn, which is a a really excellent micro history by Carl Jacobi. And so he's he's written various studies of the American West and public lands and indigenous history. And in Shadows at Dawn, there is this really telling series of anecdotes that has always stuck with me, which was that for many years, there were parts of borders that were literally piles of rocks. And when it suited people on either side, they would just move them. And that has always really stuck with me because I think we rely so heavily on maps like, you know, Trippin over here uses the map in the back to like erase centuries of violence with like, no, it's this line. But I think it's so telling that it's so hard to look back to someone like Josefina and her time period and in your mind to not imagine the outline of New Mexico and to not imagine that rigid border between the two when in all actuality, it makes sense that the grandfather is living this borderlands life. Like he's moving between these spaces and there is the genuine difficulty of the thief, but there isn't this kind of national border. Like there's no awareness of that whatsoever. Like they're of a culture that transcends these two places. Right. And there is kind of an erasure that I think she inadvertently hints at in the back of the book of, Indigenous people play virtually no role in this book. Like Rose and Marcus had names. It's literally servants in this book. Well, and then there's like Carmen and her husband in the kitchen. There's like one scene where Carmen is about to start cooking food and her husband is starting the kitchen fire for the day. That's it. Her husband has no name. Carmen is mentioned once and that's it. And and the rest of the book, they're just servants. Like we have no idea what their circumstance of their lives are. The back of the book tries to gesture at the fact that indigenous people were there first, which is kind of like a no kidding situation, but they do, you know, Valerie Tripp is obsessed with reunion and I'm not sure if that's because of the company or what, but you know, Felicity ended with this fantasy of reunion. Like it doesn't, you know, some of us were loyalists, some of us were patriots, all of us were friends. It's like, okay, well, that's not sometimes how it breaks down in real life. In the back of the book, in this book, there's kind of this feeling like, well, there were indigenous people in the area that were displaced by, you know, people from you know Spanish colonists, and yet they joined together to fight other indigenous groups. And it's like what like like is there's this fantasy of reunion of them joining together to fight against others but it does point to the fact that this is an imperial moment this is an imperial story and it's not just um spain and the united states that are the emerging empires there's another great book called comanche empire which kind of Mm. um shows the ways in which indigenous groups had their own kind of imperial politics of their of a kind um which played out in this area as well there is a mention of comanches in the back of the book but, you know, Valerie Tripp is really wading into some complicated terrain of borderlands history, indigenous history, imperial history, and Josefina is at the center of it. 
living in a domestic situation, which is by its own architecture and culture, often closed off from the rest of the world, including the town that she lives in. So I'm kind of curious to see how they're going to handle that. I, I also, when I was doing some research to make sure that I had my facts right, there's sort of this claim on the internet, and I'm, I'm not saying that I dispute it, and Santa Fe itself also really kind of takes this on as a mantle, that it's the oldest city in the United States. Like, it's this very interesting kind of game that people in New England play particularly well of, this is the oldest in what becomes the United States. Um What this had me thinking in the back of the book is they're really going hard for the claim that these colonial settlements happened well before Plymouth, Massachusetts. And it's like, this is not a game that anyone should want to win. Right. And and I say that like we have joked previously on this podcast that like, for example, the Boston Tea Party just matters more than the Yorktown Tea Party. And I stand by that. It does. But it's this really strange contrivance to be like, okay, we need to make sure we get all these colonial eggs in one basket. Reminds me of, we both read American Colonies by Alan Taylor, and he tries to really decenter the New England narrative by starting with Florida and what's now the American Southwest. And I wonder sometimes if we lose something in trying to force this all into an inevitable narrative. Like she's looking back as if like this was very obvious four or five hundred years ago when really they're very different processes. It is really strange when you go around to these sites and they are like obsessively competing to almost prove like, no, we were the people who ruined these local indigenous cultures first. Like it's a really weird thing to want to make sure that people know that you were the first to do. Yeah. Like it is a really I went to um San Diego in January and had never been to California before. And there is, I think it's like a state park or a national park that has um, uh, basically a homestead that looks very much like what Josefina is imagined to have lived in that you can go around down to having like the family altar in one room that's mentioned in this book um, and the various um, rooms with different functions for different rituals in the family. And as you're moving through this space, it's run by, um, I think, the colonial dames. Mm. So it's a really weird space because the colonial dames are traditionally a group that is preserving a very white vision of America's history. Um, I don't think they would dispute that because I think now they're trying to complicate their own history in that way. But you're moving through this space, and I just remember thinking, like, wow, there's there's not a lot of engagement here about like the indigenous peoples who were here before or like the ways that maybe it's complicated for them to want to prove that they were here so early that the Spanish had so decimated the population by a certain date that they can claim to have this early settlement date. Well, if you think about it, if we were more truthful about what things mean, like you kind of are telling on yourself by making it the colonial dames. Like, it's almost like being like the imperial gals. It's like, we did it. (laughs) Right? Yep. Like, you really are, you really are kind of like showing yourself, even with that terminology. And I don't think it's often thought of that way. I, I am so intrigued because I truly only remember like very basic sketches of where we are going with this series because, so we, we talked previously that I kind of, with the work, 
that I do now at my job, I kind of live in the 1820s in a very specific different context, which is I talk about this exact year all the time, but in the context of industrialization in New England, totally different than what's happening on the other side of the coast. So that's been kind of interesting to think about. But I don't know, like, we know that with Molly, like, we're building through Victory Gardens and towards the end of the war. We knew with Felicity, we're building towards, like, revolutionary action. Like, where are we going here? I have no idea. And it's kind of making, like, I truly have no idea. I've never read these books before. I was 11 when this book came out. Um, And I think by that point, I had kind of transitioned out, which is not to say I was too old for it. I guess I just Mm -mm. didn't. And like I think I've shared on this show before, the way I had access to the books initially was that my grandmother bought my older female cousins and I these books, and they were through two to th- two to four years older than me. So they had definitely moved on by the time Josefina came out. So I kind of by association had also aged out of it. Um, I'm kind of wondering if where we're going is sort of like we're not going to get a national air quotes national political story because she is in such a borderland space. So instead, are we going to be examining like the politics of the family? Yeah. And I want to quote a reviewer on Goodreads named Allie. And she says, if you were a Mexican living in what is now New Mexico in 1824, your biggest concern would likely not be your goat. (laughs) And I think that kind of. There are are several other people, including a reviewer named Sierra, who in 2011 wrote like a fascinatingly long review about how Josefina's people are really colonizers and there should Mm -hmm. be a lot more about that. And I appreciate that people really take the time to review these children's books from an adult perspective. And there's no shade because like that's literally what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But I almost wish we could train more nine-year-olds to get on there because I'm wondering how this reads if you don't understand geopolitics and you're just like following the goat journey. If I wasn't, I was trying to imagine like, okay, if I was a nine-year-old reading this book, what would have resonated for me or with me? And I think I really get like thrown in with, you know, emotional family narratives and this kind of has Little Women vibes to me, like yes. the way that Little Women really resonated with me when I was nine as well, of, you know, down to like having the four sisters, having them all receive gifts that are, you know, personally curated to their interests that are meant to tell us something about them, having experienced a real family loss of a female figure and having that figure sort of haunt the book. And now like we've almost reached them after Beth dies and how do they move on? Like if Beth was the, if they had lost Marmy instead. So I think that's kind of the points that hit you. Like I actually really appreciated the kind of moments of introspection that Valerie Tripp does have in the book when Josefina is sort of marking the grief that she finds in others of like Tia Dolores taking a moment to kind of like show her grief or when she sees grief on her father's face when he's thinking about his wife, you know, it is palpable. And so I think that probably would have resonated with me, but I never, I would have, I think as a reader, you're trained to think like Josefina, like you are in the Mm -hmm. walls of her house. You're not going outside those walls except down to the stream to do laundry. So you have no idea what's happening if you're a nine-year-old probably, unless, you know, you're the child of academics, in which case. There's other issues. There's other issues. Yeah. So she's a Pisces. How does that feel for you? That feels complicated for me because my guess was that she was a Leo. 
Because when she got that gold necklace and was like, ooh, like basically the others got utilitarian gifts like sewing needles, a sewing diary. Um, the oldest but one also, got a silk blouse or something, right? Yeah, shawl. But also like not useful because they're not literate. Right. But <laughs> that's Tia. De- that's on Tia Dolores. <laughs> yes, And actually is. she should have known that because grandpa she reveals when they're like, how did you know what, how to, what to get us these unique gifts? Like you don't know us. And she was kind of creepily like, well, um, abuelo would tell us like your mother would dictate letters that Mm. then grandpa would read to me. So it's like, okay, you clocked that your sister doesn't know how to read. Therefore her daughters probably didn't learn to read it unless her father taught them. The father taught them, which was unlikely because of their household chores and the realities of their lives. Yeah, I'm clocking back to this now, and I'm like, Tia, your job interview to be wife 2.0, mixed results. Okay, but I think there's such a scarcity situation that I think she's going to win the day. I think it's a foregone conclusion that they are going to get married. We leave the family with Josefina and sisters trying to come up with a scheme to get Dolores to stay. The flowers have not worked out. The goat has ruined everything, potentially. And they're like, we have to ask dad. Like, he's going to have to be the one to ask because, like, that's not uncomfortable. Then we learn that she's she's heading town. She's getting back on the road with grandpa. But she's left her piano behind. And it's like, girls, this can only mean one thing. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. And it's like, what did the dad say to her to convince her to stay? That happens like out of our reach we don't get to hear that conversation and also i i think it's really weird that the book goes out of the way to kind of say in a way that maybe is believable of a nine-year-old who you know when you're that young and you're just like my mom's the most beautiful person in the world like my mom's my hero especially if the mother has passed basically josefina is like she's like my mom but less cute yeah like there's these weird descriptions and it's like ooh, but it's kind of and then there's also when they're like tia can't move in with us like she's still she could still get married like she could still have a family up with in santa fe like we can't rob her of that and it's like oh no 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 like that's probably why she's moving in because she knows she knows and she knows that there could be a warrant at some point back in Mexico City because of what went on with the aunt. You know, I am very sure, and I would love to launch this offshoot series of, you know, a detective who is sent to solve the crime. What if that detective is Josefina when she grows up? Oh, my God. And she returns, and she's like, the the series is called, like, R.I.P. Tia. I also think she could be a Pinkerton because I don't know yeah. why I get I get a slight anti-union vibe from her. Like, I don't know why I think that, but I feel it from Tia. No, from Josefina. Josefina? Interesting. Like, I could see her shutting down or suppressing some kind of movement in the Midwest as an older unmarried woman who lives on the edge. Correct. Like, I, totally I don't see that. I don't know why I feel that for her. I just do. She's not like giving you Felicity vibes of like, I see the social order of which I'm a part and I'm not okay with my limited roles. She's basically like, no, I want a woman to make sure that I know exactly like how to make X, Y, Z thing I'm supposed to make as a woman in this world. Yeah. Well, she doesn't have red hair. She's not spunky. That was Felicity's entire personality. And I'll note Tia Dolores has red hair. 
Wow. Oh my gosh. You caught so many things I did not about Dolores. Like I know that we have like close friends who love murder. She wrote like that's you with this. Uh Uh-huh. That's right. Call me Angela Lansbury. I am prepared to solve the crime right now. Okay. Here's something also interesting. It's not just that Dolores has been in Mexico City for some arbitrary amount of time. It's been exactly a decade, which would track with Josefina's conception. That's all I'm going to say. Wow. So, I like, she was around and was like, I got to leave town? I don't know. I don't know. That's not for me to answer. Oh, my God. What if she was like, look, I want to be a mom, but I don't want to actually bring children into the world. So, I'm going to remove myself from the situation and I also want to kind of like do me and, you know, because it's like she's done whatever she's wanted for a decade. Like this woman's had a license to ill and potentially a license to kill. And now yes. she's like, you know what? I didn't think I wanted this domestic life. And now here I am. So I know that from here, these stories are just going to get more intense, like not so much in terms of a nationalist or political narrative. But we learned that in book two, when Josefina learns a lesson that Dolores will bring exciting changes for the family and the sisters. And the question is, but will all the changes make them forget Mama? Guess what? I'll never forget her. Like Valerie goes right to the heart of it. There's no da- there's no dancing around. She's like, I know this is for nine-year-olds. I can't be subtle. Yeah, it's, it's very rough stuff. And I do want to say that I have a Valerie Tripp author bio in the back of my copy. Love and that. It has a line that I absolutely love. Okay, so it's about her being a writer, yada yada yada. And then it says, quote, talking is her favorite sport. That's it. That's a little quote. <laughs> you know, I respect that. Relatable content. I also would love to know, I'm sure there's an archive of this somewhere. So there are books, of course, in Spanish, or sorry, there are words in Spanish in this book, which you have heard us say not so well. Um And at the very beginning of this book, it says, Josefina and her family speak Spanish. So you'll see some Spanish words in this book. And notably, these books were also available from first run as Spanish books. And I kind of wonder at what point they made translation a priority. Like, I wonder what exactly spurred this. Hmm. That is interesting. I would like to know more about that. I don't know. And I also want to know more about why they picked certain words to include in Spanish and use in the glossary in the back, because some of the words they picked didn't seem very essential to the story. Also, I'm sorry, just like I know I'm like getting off topic, but it's a really missed opportunity. She could have made her birth date the death date of Selena because she is a March death. Like it's two weeks apart. Just pick. It's really upsetting. And... I can't believe we're back around to Selena. I'm just like staring off into space. I'm it, it impacted me. That's all I need to say. I have been following extremely closely the work of the estate of her family around her legacy. And I was upset, but also like probably would have gone. They were going to um, have a hologram of her go on tour. And it's just like, that's not okay. So she died in 1995. Tupac Shakur dies in 1996. Meet Josefina comes out in 1997. I don't have anything else to add. If you can't connect those dots, kindly stop listening to this show. 
But also, if you can connect the dots, please call reach us. out to us if there's something you know that we don't. We would love to know. I think this whole book is really an argument about the ways in which like, we are blind to the death of our pre-colonial past on this continent. <laughs> that, that's a very deep... Like, are we the goat? Probably not. No? Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Probably not. But, I mean, I don't even know what to say to that. It's real. I don't either. I I really want people who are very in deep with Josefina to absolutely reach out to us. We did also have what we thought was a pretty important question for when this show is going to be released that we want people to call us about. Right. Do you want to ask it or do you want me to? I think you should ask it. All right. So June is National Pride Month, as we may or may not be aware. Um and we've had a lot of arguments off air with people we know and don't know about who is the queerest American girl of them all and why. You know, I think it's Molly. I'm just going to put my cards on the table. I think it's Molly. But there have been very real arguments for it being Samantha, for it being Kirsten, for it being like literally any of the American girls. So we want you to call us on our hotline. Tell us who you think is the queerest American girl of them all and why. And keep in mind that we might use your story or answer on the show. We would love to hear from people and play your calls on air. Casual reminder, you can call us as Ann Lister if that's something that feels right for you. Please do. And you can give your name as Ann Lister. You don't even have to use your real name. Right. If you don't want to use your name at all, that's totally cool. You can just call and tell us who is the queerest American girl of them all and why. We want your fierce feedback. We want your deep feelings. And please pull it together and call us and leave us a message at 860-455-4091. Again, that's 860-455-4091. And if you're someone who's nervous about talking on the phone, like if you absolutely dread that, we get it. Just know like we never answer this line. It's just a voicemail number. So you can safely call us. We will not be there. And leave us your message at 860-455-4091. Yes. And there are lots of other ways you can also reach us. We do absolutely appreciate when you reach out to us on social media. You can send us an email at Pod. You can also tell your story on our website at AmericanGirlsPod.com. We can be reached on Twitter at AGirlsPod or on Instagram and Facebook at American Girls Podcast. Yeah. And where can people find you, Allison? They can find me at Allison Horrocks on both Instagram and Twitter. And they can find you. I'm on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney and on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123. We want you to make our hotline bling. I feel like we do. We do. We do. It's it's real. Um, please get at us. We love all your thoughts, and we love hearing from you. We get so many great messages from people, and it really makes our day. So, um, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you again for episode two on Josefina. Yeah, we'll see if we learn anything. Probably not. Mm-hmm.